you're welcome. I want to direct your attention this evening and to bring to you God's word as it is found in the 124th Psalm, Psalm 124. It's a, it's a short psalm and uh, we'll look briefly at the whole psalm. The book of Psalms have long been uh, precious to the Lord's people. Psalms were the hymn book of the Old Testament. The psalm we are to look at, Psalm 124, belongs to a group of psalms called um, Songs of Degrees, I think, authorized version, or Songs of Ascents. And they've been, that's been understood in different ways. We have to remember that the, the headings of our psalms, though they are helpful, and uh, have long been regarded as a reliable guide. They're not a part of the inspired text, so we have to, we have to remember that. But here are these psalms that obviously do belong together as a group of psalms. And they're thought to have been pilgrim psalms, that as uh, the people journeyed up from their villages and towns, in um, Israel, Judea, to Jerusalem for the great feasts that were held, the spiritual times that were held at Passover and so on, that these psalms were sung at that particular time. Now, in fact, Psalm 124 seems to celebrate some great deliverance, some particular deliverance that the psalmist has in mind. But here it is in the scriptures, part of the word of God, and we look to God to speak to us. And if I were to give a title this evening, I think I might call it If and But. If and But. Verse 1, If. It had not been that the Lord was on our side. And then verse 6, there's no but there in the scriptures, but the sense is there of a, of a but. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us a prey to their teeth. If and but. So the psalm divides clearly into, into two parts. The first part of the psalm the consequences of not having the Lord with us and not knowing that the Lord is for us. You notice how the, how the psalm begins. The psalmist uh, repeats himself. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel now say, if the Lord had not been on our side. Now that kind of thing happens Precisely that way in only one other psalm, Psalm 129. We can't be sure of this, but we know, uh, sorry, but we may suppose that the, that the cantor, the man who was leading the singing 
in uh, the temple that uh, he sang the first line and the congregation came in with, uh, with the second. It may be that that's uh, how it was. But it's a very precious psalm and we're very thankful that it's here in the scriptures. So we begin, I suppose, by asking the question, why does the psalm begin in this particular way? Why this attention to what might have been? Why doesn't the psalmist simply go straight to verse 6, Blessed be the Lord who has not given us over to our enemies. Why not start the psalm on that uh, positive note? But of course that's not what he does. He says, what if? And you have this uh, marvelous contrast between darkness and light. first part of the psalm is very dark. And then you move into the light. It's a, it's a dreadful picture. David, author of the psalm, is in real danger. Look at the vivid metaphors that he uses. Swallowed up, swallowed them up alive, he says, concerning David's enemies. A raging torrent breaking over them. Caught in the teeth of some monster trapped in the snare of a fowler. That's what might have been. The psalmist is saying, all of that might have been our lot and our part. There's a whole dark situation to begin with. You, you pass in the psalm in a marvelous way from darkness to light. Wasn't that one of the great um, Reformation mottos? After darkness, light. Howard can tell you the Latin for that, but I can't. But that was it. After darkness, light. That was right. The darkness of the centuries that preceded the Reformation. And then the light of the gospel sweeping through Europe. And in a sense, our experience is like that. Darkness and then Light, that's exactly really where, where we are. We were once in the darkness, in our sins, and helpless, and hopeless, and in great danger, in great danger of going through this earthly life with no knowledge of God, no knowledge of sins forgiven, no knowledge of the Savior, coming to our deathbed without hope, and in darkness and passing into a dark eternity and judgment. Yes, it was once dark with us and hopeless. And it's good for us. It's good for us to remember that. To remember what we once were and where we once were. I trust in your experience that you can you can look at your own life and say, yes, there was darkness, but now there's light in the Lord Jesus Christ. John Newton, of course, provides a, a marvelous example of this. He, he never forgot what he had been. 
never forgot how the grace of God had reached out to him. And uh, I hope you will read his life, a life well worth reading. But when he was an old man, lived to a good age, when he was old, an old man in his uh, 80s, he became very absent-minded. And um, his sermons often were very muddled. He did his preparation, but his mind wouldn't hold things clearly. A strange thing is this, that people who heard Newton, even in his old age, even when his sermons were rather confused at times, there was a grace and blessing in his preaching. But that was, that's how it was with uh, Newton. And um, his friend Richard Cecil, who was also himself an evangelical preacher, Cecil said to him one day, had not the time come for John Newton to give up preaching? Now, a very bold thing to say to John Newton, but uh, he said it. And uh, Newton said, what? What, he said? Shall the old African blasphemer cease to speak? Never lost that sense of indebtedness, that sense of what he had been and what he was when the grace of God reached him. You and I should be like that. Grace of God reached us in our darkness and in our lostness. If the Lord had not been on our side, what kept the psalmist? What delivered him? Well, the Lord delivered him wonderfully and uh, and marvelously all the plans and purposes of God from all eternity came sweeping down in the life of the psalmist and delivered him from his troubles from his perils and from his his darkness and isn't isn't that how the grace of God works the Christian can look back and say well I was that now I'm this. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not what I should be. I'm not what I long to be. With John Newton, we can say, but thank God, I'm not what I was. Wonderful to be able to, to give that to the testimony of a Christian. I'm not what I was. A change has come. And the Lord brought about that change. The Lord intervened. And the older we get, the more we reflect on our youth and our childhood, the more we see clearly that it was the Lord who intervened. It was the Lord who sought us before we sought him. I've often looked back with um, thankfulness on my own life and, and just seen the, the way in which God brought me into touch with Christians, brought me into a Sunday school, where the word of God was faithfully taught, gave us neighbors who were Christians. All of these things were in place. As a young boy, 12, 13, coming 14, I had no real interest in these things, except that there was a growing interest. I sensed 
the love and the concern that these people had for me. I had a Sunday school teacher and I knew he cared about me. I knew he wanted to point me to the Savior. I knew that. He wasn't a, he wasn't a particularly good teacher. But I knew that he cared. And that came through. And I look back on my own youth and childhood, thankful that the Lord at last intervened, made himself known to me. But that's, that's how the grace of God uh, always works. We sing that hymn, don't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. The grace of God is always amazing. The grace of God always surprises us. God doesn't work to our patterns. God doesn't follow, as it were, our, our plans. He amazes us. Isn't it true that we look at people and we think, oh, he's a likely candidate for the kingdom. He surely will be converted. And then we look at somebody else and we think, well, less likely. And isn't it one of the marvelous things that the less likely and the most unlikely are brought into the kingdom of God. God surprises us with his grace. <clears throat> One of the most uh, famous of Dr. Jones's sermons was a sermon preached on uh, the book of Ephesians, chapter 2 and verse 4, and the verse that begins, But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he hath loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. I remember that, that, that Dr. Lloyd-Jones had a sermon on those first two words. But God. And he preached it around. He preached it in Manchester. It, it, uh, it was great. Two wonderful words, but God. How thankful we should be for the mercy of God intervened in our lives, brought us to the Savior, changed us. The gospel changes from inside out, isn't it? That's how it works. It isn't that uh, the behavior is improved and so on. No, no, that's not how it begins. It begins in the heart. God changes the heart. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can change the human heart. No one else can do that. The preacher can't do that. Our friends can't do that. Our parents can't do that. It's beyond the power of human beings to change the heart and break the power of its sinfulness. But the Lord Jesus Christ can do that and does do it wonderfully has done down through the centuries you know I, you may think this is a diversion but uh, I hope it isn't the gospel that we preach is, is not primarily a social gospel or a political message it's important to say that at the present time. 
people will say to us, well, if you have a social message, if you have a political message, we listen to you. And we say to them, no, no, we have something far more vital and more central and more important than that. Now, don't misunderstand me. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ when it triumphs in a community and many are gathered into the kingdom, it has social effects. Lives of men and women. Not only the lives of Christians. The lives of people not Christians. Influenced by the gospel. Not saved, but influenced by the gospel. And changes come. That was true in the, in the 18th century. And into the beginning of the 19th century. Great changes came in this country as a result of the preaching of the gospel. Many of those changes were, were social changes. But the message of the gospel is never primarily a, a, a gospel of social reform. Because our condition is far deeper and far more serious than that. Men and women need more than that. They need a new heart. They need peace with God. They need their sins forgiven. They need to be made ready for the eternal world. And only the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ can do that. And when our hearts are right, when we're at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, when we're right with God, then, then that affects the way in which we live towards others. That affects the way in which we live in society. The psalmist has this uh, sense of deliverance. Our help, he says in the last word, verse. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. How marvelous that is to be able to, to say that. What a strange victory this was. David's victory won battles by living and conquering his enemies. But our Savior, our King, our great Deliverer, he saves us by his death. That's the focus of the New Testament. Yes, he rose gloriously from the dead. He's a living Savior. He's in heaven now and he's enthroned and he's reigning. All of that we can say and we can say our hallelujahs to it. But if you want to pinpoint what lies at the very center of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, it's the cross. We preach Christ and him crucified. Paul could say, that was not a popular message. Preaching of the cross has never been popular. It's very humbling. Brings us low before God. I have to acknowledge my own sinfulness and wretchedness. I have to acknowledge that I cannot save myself. I cannot change this wretched heart of mine. Only God in Christ can do that. Jesus Christ did it by dying on the cross and died as our substitute. You know, substitution has become quite unpopular in the days in which we live. People have put it aside and said, well, it's a primitive view. But it's not a primitive view. It's central to the gospel. 
The Lord Jesus Christ took our sins on the cross. He became our substitute. He became our sin bearer. We sing that in our hymns, don't we? And glory in it. Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned he stood. All our hopes are in that. That Christ stood in my place bore the judgment that was due to my sins. All that, those words of William Williams, the enormous load of human guilt was on my Saviour laid. How precious that is. Centre of the Gospel. But let me, let me make another aside that I think is important here. There are, as I said, objections raised to the whole truth of substitution. Christ in my place. There are objections and there are moral objections. And you know the argument probably, but it goes like this. If I break the laws of this country and I'm taken to court for it and I'm sentenced to prison, no one else can come along and say, I'll go in near Richard's place and he can go, he can go free. Nobody said, no, you can't do that. That's not moral. I broke the laws. I committed the crimes. I must suffer. That's how our morality works. And that's, that's right. That's absolutely right. So you say, how could Jesus Christ become my substitute? How could he take my judgment, my place, that I might have peace with God. I think there are two comments that we may to make here, two things that we need to have in our mind. The first is that when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, God was not punishing a third party. God was in Christ bearing our sins on Calvary's cross reconciling the world to himself God God the great judge the eternal one he is in Christ and he bears our sins we're not to blur the distinction between the persons of the Trinity we're not to say oh does that mean that the father died on the cross no it doesn't there's a distinction in the Trinity between the Son and the Father. And yet there's a unity. There's a unity. God came in Christ and bore all my sins away. Not God finding someone else. Not God taking an angel or Gabriel. But God coming in the person of his Son. For our salvation. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is this. There's a unique relationship. Between. The Christian. And the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a. A wonderful closeness. And, 
and, and unity. In a, in a sense, a unity so close, so wonderful, is it has no adequate parallel. The Bible, and in the, in, the, in the epistles, again and again, you get this little phrase, in Christ, in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, drawn and united to him. We are made alive, the scripture says, in Christ. In Christ there is neither male nor female. Close unity, union with the Lord Jesus Christ. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How can I become the righteousness of God? In Christ. Isn't that the wonder of it? He sees you in the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees you clothed in his righteousness. And you're accepted in the beloved one. How lovely that is. And how wonderful that great truth of substitution really is. Pray that God will bless this psalm to us this evening, written in Old Testament times when many of the truths of which I've spoken were, were distant and, and somewhat dim. But, but we are more privileged. We live after the events to which all the prophets and the godly men and women of the Old Testament looked for the coming of the Messiah. We look back on that event. The Lord has come. He has suffered. He has died. He has borne our sins on the tree. And we have higher privileges than they. Share the same salvation. But in terms of our earthly life, we are more Highly privileged. A lovely hymn that we sing sometimes. Never further from thy cross, never higher than thy feet. Here earth's precious things seem dross, here earth's bitter things seem sweet. Gazing thus our sin we see, learn thy love while gazing thus. Sin which laid the cross on thee. Love which bore the cross for us. Here we learn to serve and give. And rejoicing self-deny. Here we gather love to live. Here we gather faith to die. Isn't that right? Faith to die. Yes, this gospel is a gospel to die on as well as to live on. May God bless it to you. Amen. <coughs>